0: All right, if you uh, have a Bible, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We are uh, nearing the end of our long journey through the book of Hebrews. We have this week and next week, and then we are done with the letter to the Hebrews. So this week we'll... Consider our, uh, the first half of the uh, last chapter. We'll look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. And if you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 1286. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. Hebrews chapter 13, 1 through 17. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. But we seek the city that is to come through him. Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful this morning for your word, for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in and through your word, by your Holy Spirit, and most of all in the person and work of your Son, our Lord, the King of Kings, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we do pray now, Holy Spirit, would you help us to see the things in this passage that you would have uh, us focused on, that you would want our hearts to be wrapped around. And Lord, we pray that this would be a time when you work in us, that you might also work through us, that we might be more and more encouraged and equipped to continue to take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was interesting when I was watching the opening ceremonies to the Winter Olympics uh, this year and notice the the contrast between the the different countries' athletes. Uh, particularly like the amount of the athletes that they sent. So you might know that America sent 244 Olympians to the Winter Olympics this year. And so it was fun to watch them walking around in the open, opening ceremonies, walking around the arena, carrying the flag, and they were super excited, and they were arm in arm, they were taking selfies. I mean, it was just like this really cool uh, community, this group that they had to go with. And I noticed the contrast between that and then other countries that sent far fewer athletes, like Azerbaijan, for example, sent one Olympian to the Winter Olympics, uh, his name is Patrick Brackner. He is a 26-year-old downhill skier. And so in the opening ceremonies, it was just him walking around the arena carrying his country's blue and red and green flag. And you kind of see that that contrast of that excitement and that joy that our athletes had in community with one another uh, as compared to the one guy who kind of was on his own. And there are times when... As Christians, we're called by God to carry the flag by ourselves, so to speak. Um, Sometimes a missionary will be the only person he or she knows uh, that knows Christ in their area, or sometimes people uh, move to a new area and are unable to find a good church to plug into. But God's design for most of us is that we would live the Christian life together in a community of faith in community with one another, uh, primarily through a local church. And there's a number of things that we could focus on in this passage this morning. It covers so many things. But what we're going to focus on is what it tells us about the type of community that we're meant to have uh, in and through our participation and our membership in our church, in our local church. And the thing is, it's like God wants us to have something our hearts really do long for, We really do long for true and genuine community. In fact, one of the things that's interesting about the millennial generation is that studies are showing that that the majority of millennials are reporting that they do not have many, or some say any, really close friends. And in fact, here's something that's interesting. There are uh, a variety of dating apps out there, none of which I'm willing to recommend. However... um, CNN reported that 53% of people who use dating apps report that they're actually using it not for dating but to find friends. And so now people are developing apps just to help you find friends in your city. Isn't that amazing? And here's what that does. That touches on the reality of our deep need for true and genuine community. And the good news is that God wants us to have that. We were designed for that, and he wants us to have that. And this passage touches on some of the things uh, that we need to understand if we're going to be a part of that and have that true community. So our focus this morning is that a church is meant to be a source of genuine community for us as we follow Christ. Okay, A church, a local church like UPC, is meant to be for us a source of genuine community as we follow Christ. And so we're going to uh, understand that this morning by looking at three different things. I uh, want to talk about how a church is meant to be characterized by God's love. Okay, That's the key thing. That's where that community comes from. Uh, uh, when, our, when our church is characterized by God's love. Second, uh, the way to that. The way we get there is God uh, shows us that we need to be committed to God's law. So we'll talk about that. And then third, uh, this passage shows that a church is meant to be led by godly leaders. So those three things, if you're making an outline, a church is meant to be characterized by God's love, committed to God's law, and led by godly leaders. So let's jump in. Take a look at verse 1. Okay, Verse 1, short and sweet and to the point. Let's look at how a church is supposed to be characterized by God's love. Notice in verse 1 he says, let brotherly love continue. And this is really important. He doesn't say, you know, he's talking to this congregation that he pastored at one point and he doesn't just say let love continue. He says let brotherly love, Philadelphia in the Greek, let brotherly love continue. In other words, he wanted this congregation to to be characterized by a very special love, a very unique love, a love like that between family members, between brothers. And this doesn't come out of nowhere, by the way. All through the letter, the author has been developing this theme of brotherhood. You might remember from chapter 2, the author said that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Uh, Also in chapter 2, it said Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Uh, last couple of weeks ago in chapter 12, we looked at how it said God is treating us as children or treating us as sons, right? When, he, when he's disciplining us because we're family, we're all part of his family. And here he says, let brotherly love continue. And so here's this command, this call for that congregation and through that also us as a congregation to be a place where there's this unique love, this brotherly love and it's also it's not it's not just through the book of Hebrews that this theme is developed. In all through the scriptures, our need for community is shown. In fact, in the very beginning, God said uh, when just it was when it was only Adam, what did God say? It's not good for man to be alone. See, we are made in the image of a triune God, one God and three persons. Okay, so there's community in the Trinity, and we're made in the image of God, and therefore we are designed for community. We need it, and our hearts long for it. And it's God's design that we experience that genuine community that our hearts long for uh, in and through a, a church, in and through a local church, and where we should have uh, love and care for one another, very much like a family. Now, some of us did not grow up in a loving family, which is a sad thing, and we, and we lament that. But all of us at least have that, a picture, an idea of what it would be like or what it is like in a very, very loving family. There's these bonds that are created and there's really nothing like it. I was thinking about this, uh, this past week because at our session meeting, one of our elders shared a story about his daughter. And when, when his daughter was in high school, she, she got into theology. Okay. And so she was reading all these different theology books, and she was always asking him for recommendations. She would say, Dad, what should I read about this? What book should I read about that? Well, now she's all grown up, and she is in seminary in St. Louis. And so he was telling us that now things, you know, he he has this kind of little uh, heartbreak over the fact that she probably doesn't want book recommendations from him anymore because she's studying under these Ph.D. Bible scholars, So surely she's probably more interested in recommendations from them. And so he mentioned that to her. He said, you probably don't want book recommendations from me. You probably are looking for recommendations from the Ph.D. guys. And she says, yeah, but dad, there's just something about a recommendation from your dad. And it was sweet because we just in that moment, you see that in that family, there's this love. There's this special bond that's there. And it's really hard to even uh, explain because it's that special. And and what God is showing us in His Word and in calling us to brotherly love is that that's the type of love and bond and experience that we're meant to have with one another. We're meant to be treating each other now the way we will in the new heavens and new earth, where we really will operate like one big loving family that treats each other in amazing ways. And so that's one of the things that we can see here is that a church is supposed to be characterized by God's love. And one of the things I think we can take away from that, then is that we can't really contribute to uh, that loving, genuine community or uh, experience the benefit of it if we're not very involved. And this is why I think when, we, when we're aware that some people are simply just coming to the worship service uh, we would say that you're, you're being robbed of part of what it's supposed to—you're supposed to experience in and through a church that genuine community. This is one of the reasons that we're really big on life groups here. Uh, that's where we're able to experience more of that community in a smaller group of people committed to Christ and committed to one another. So, if you're not in a life group, here's a here's a plug to be in a life group because God knows that our hearts long for real, true. Genuine community, and he seeks to give us that uh, through our participation in a local church. Now, I will say this: if you have tried to find genuine community here and you haven't been able to find it, you should talk to me. That's a whole other sermon. We'll, we'll get to that one day. Um, but you should, at the very least, come talk to me because it's very important that we are seeing that people are having that genuine community here. So, how does how does a church do that then? How does the church arrive? And remain as a place where people are experiencing real, true, genuine community. Look at verses 2 through 6. This is huge. The author shows us that a church is supposed to be not only characterized by God's love, but committed to God's law. And the more committed we are to His law, the more we're going to be a community of genuine love, genuine brotherly love look at verses 2 through 6 and notice how he's he, he he's now kind of listing some commands these are imperatives verse 2 he says do not neglect to show hospitality verse 3 he talks about remembering people in prison and who were mistreated so we might call that a call to compassion uh, verse 4 he talks about being faithful in marriage and then he talks about uh, not loving money and being content uh, later in verse 16 he'll talk about doing good and sharing what we have with one another and in verse 6, there's this call to remember that God will never leave us or forsake us and to say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear him. What can man do to me? And so he's, he's interestingly enough, after he calls this congregation to brotherly love, then he gives a list of commands. And, you know, he may be just rattling off a, a random list of commands, but I think he's doing something uh, more intentional in the way that he seems to be operated according, operating according to the New Testament theme of love being expressed through the obedience to God's law. Okay, so we're very clear here. We try to be very clear that God's law is not a means to our salvation. We can't be saved by what we do. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ because of what he's done for us. God's law is not a means to salvation, but the law does show us how to love God how to love one another. And therefore, it's instructions on how to be a truly genuine community where people feel very, very loved and have the opportunity to love one another well. And one of the places that we see this is in Matthew 22. I want you to see this. Uh, In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked by a lawyer uh, what is the most important commandment. And this is another place we see that connection between the law actually being the guide for love. Take a look. It says, one of them, a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great commandment and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice this. He says, on these two commandments... Depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, he's saying everything in the Old Testament, all the imperatives, all the commands, are basically showing you and I who trust God, who believe in God, how to love God, how to love one another. Uh, Paul says something similar in Galatians 5.14. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, he says something similar in Romans thirteen and James says something similar in James chapter two. He says, "If we would fulfill the royal law, then we would love our neighbor as ourselves i mean isn 't that amazing that's we, the law is not how we 're saved, but it is how we love each other really well it 's our guide to unbelievable otherworldly, genuine community and here 's an incredible incentive on getting more and more serious about the law of God, um, the way it impacted the church in the beginning, or at least in the New Testament phase of the life of the church. If you want to read a fascinating book, there's a fascinating book entitled The Rise of Christianity by a sociologist named Rodney Stark, The Rise of Christianity. And it's, it's an incredible book, and he talks about what he thinks are the ten reasons that the church the christian church grew so fast nothing no movement no philosophy no religion has ever grown as fast as christianity and so this book gives the 10 reasons he thinks uh, for the the rapid growth of christianity and when he gets to the end of the book it's the shortest chapter and the reason the 10th reason he says is the biggest reason for why the church grew so fast and here's his thesis He says central doctrines of Christianity prompted and sustained attractive, liberating, and effective social relations and organizations. Let me unpack that. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that biblical teaching was leading to relationships between individual Christians and then between groups of Christians or churches that were very attractive to the outside, very liberating. Very effective. Okay, He's saying that as the Christians were obeying God's commands, it was creating genuine community that people wanted to be a part of. It drew people in. Uh, he says, it, and it was depending on their obedience because uh, he says this, it was only as Christian texts and teachings were acted out in daily life that Christianity was able to transform the human experience. That's amazing. So what he's getting at is, in his estimation, the number one reason the Christian church grew so fast is because as Christians lived out the commands of God, it was transforming the human experience, and that was drawing more and more people in. So first, I think one thing we can take away from that then is that this passage, this uh, emphasis on being committed to law should make us very eager to rely more and more on the power of the Holy Spirit in order to live more and more in line with God's law. This should help us run to repentance, to more faith, to more obedience, knowing that as we get more and more serious about obeying God's law, it creates an unbelievable otherworldly genuine community here and then second and this is really important this should help us see that if and when a church is not characterized by god's love it isn't because they're taking god's law too seriously that's usually kind of what we think like if people are pretty self-righteous and and judgmental sometimes we think they're taking god's law too seriously that is not the case when a christian or a christian church is being judgmental and unloving and unkind, it is not because they are taking God's law too seriously. It's because they're not taking God's law seriously enough. Now think about this with me. Um, Jesus was so gentle with sinners, but who was he firm with? The Pharisees was so firm with the pharisees because they were not loving they were not welcoming in fact listen to what he says in matthew 23 23 he says woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness these you ought to have done without neglecting The others, And so what you see in that is Jesus is actually calling people out for focusing on the minutia and neglecting what he calls the weightier matters of the law, being merciful to one another, living justly, being faithful. So the reality is, if a church is, is being judgmental, it's not because they're taking the law too seriously, it's because they're not taking God's law seriously enough and they're just focusing on little aspects of it that they think they can do. Instead of seeing it as a way to love people. In fact, think about this. As God sanctifies us through the work of the Holy Spirit, as we repent and rely on Him for power, He's making us more like Jesus, right? And who loved to be around Jesus? The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners. They were just drawn to Him who's perfectly holy. So holiness does not drive people away. I love what Nancy Lee DeMoss says. She says, True holiness isn't cold and deadening. It's warm and inviting. It's irresistible. Those who think otherwise have never seen it, but only its caricatures. This is, so we want to take from this, if, if a church or if a group of Christians are not being loving and welcoming and kind, it's not because they're taking God's law too seriously. It's because they're not taking it seriously enough And so, if we want to be a loving church, which I know that we do, I hope that we do, it's going to be through us growing in our ability to obey God's law by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, a church is supposed to be this place of true, genuine community, and a church gets there as it commits itself to God's law, okay, And then one of the things that God provides to help us with that is godly leaders. So take a look at verses 7 through 17. Let's talk about how a church is supposed to be guided by godly leaders. Um, In verse 7, the author says, Remember, your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then it appears that at this time the Hebrews uh, were possibly veering from some of the things that they had originally been taught And uh, so, therefore, uh, the author continues uh, in verse 8. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, what you were taught in the beginning hasn't changed. He's telling them, verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And then, if we had more time, we could flesh out what he's talking about in the rest of verse 9, 10, and 11. But ultimately, what he's talking about is keeping them from uh, uh, giving in to some teaching that was coming in. Uh, that had to do with Old Testament dietary laws and things like that, where people were basically saying that you become more holy through doing these certain things as opposed to by the grace of God. But I want you to notice that his emphasis on leaders, verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Now, one of the reasons that God provides requirements or qualifications For leaders in places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is because leaders, pastors, elders are are supposed to live their life in such a way that, number one, their life and doctrine match, that we practice what we preach, and two, that our lives can actually serve as an example for people to follow. Paul says something like this in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, let's notice what we're supposed to imitate. Uh, Because no leader is perfect, okay? You already know that very well about me. But it doesn't say imitate the leader. It says imitate their what? Their faith. Imitate their faith. And what that means is it's biblical for us to continue to learn to how to follow Jesus by imitating leaders that God has provided. By imitating their faith. Especially young believers, new believers, having someone who is showing them how to follow Jesus by doing it first themselves is huge. In fact, one author, Peter O'Brien, says this. For Hebrews, or the author of Hebrews, the call to remember, consider, and imitate the exemplary faith of their leaders characterizes true discipleship. So we want, to be, uh, we want to have people in our lives that we can learn from. Now, uh, look at verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, we'll unpack this verse a little bit, but it really deserves probably its, its own sermon. Which we'll do at some time, but I want you to—I want to touch on a few things. So notice that in in, in it says uh, obey your leaders. In the Greek uh, language, uh, that literally to say obey your leaders, it literally says there be persuaded by. Isn't that interesting? Be persuaded by your leaders, and the word submit literally means no longer resist. So what he's saying in a very literal wooden way he's saying be persuaded by your leaders and don't resist them now if you look in verse if you remember in verse 7 it says that their leaders are the ones who had spoke the word of god to them so if we put that together uh, what we're seeing is god's word is saying as a pastor is preaching and teaching the word be persuaded by what the word is saying don't resist what god is saying to you through the ones speaking the word of god to you After all, as the text says, people who are preaching and leading us are keeping watch over our souls. And we have to give an account. I have to give an account one day for everything I said and the way that I led at this church. And so with those things in mind, he says, let them do this with joy. Let leaders teach and preach and persuade let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, what he's saying is it's, it's to your advantage to respond positively to the word as it is preached and as it is taught. It's to your advantage. And what, what really gives a truly godly leader joy is not when he feels like people are really listening to him. It's when he can see... That people are listening to God through God's word as he is exposing what the word of God says to them. That's what gives me joy. When I see you responding to the word of God. And that's to your advantage. Because, I mean, from my perspective, I'm watching over your soul. And that not only has to do with eternity, right? Not only has to do with eternity and calling you to continue in faith, but it also has to do with right now. Your soul exists right now. Your soul needs things right now. And in, in light of what we've been talking about, your soul needs genuine community. And we, we receive that more and more as we submit ourselves to the law of God, it creates this environment of the love of God. And so when what, what causes a pastor to groan is when people are not responding to what God's word is saying. Because it's like... They're trying to avoid something that will actually change them and do good in their life. Have you ever taken a little kid to the emergency room? Uh, Yesterday, I kid you not, two of my friends got in touch with me to tell me that they had to take their kids to the emergency room. One, because he was very sick, and I got a text this morning saying he's okay. Uh, The other, because uh, his son uh, put his teeth through his lip, falling, so... Uh, I, I got a text there at the hospital as well. So, And I have been to the ER a couple times, uh, particularly with my son, whom I asked if I could share this. But one time Noah split his forehead, and uh, I, we thought he was going to have to get stitches, but they glued it shut. So that's awesome. Um, and then another time he had to get staples because he had a big gash in the side of his head. Now, these are, you know, we all, all, all kids get hurt. If you don't have kids, don't judge my parenting right now. Um, <laughs> But here's what's interesting. You take a little kid to the ER. And here's the doctor. Who's seeking to do something for their healing. But what's the kid doing? Squirming and wiggling and screaming and fighting and get away from me. Don't know. You know, they're resisting. They're resisting. They're resisting. I remember when we were putting those staples in. And you know me and blood. I survived this. I can't handle looking at blood. But when we got the staples in, we had to like hold my son's head because he wouldn't stay still. And so we did it. And, um, and once he finally, finally stopped resisting, click, 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 and uh, now there's no hole in his head. So that's really good. Now think about that. Once, once the child finally stops resisting what the doctor is there to do, then the healing begins. And I'm not the doctor. He's the great physician, the Lord God Almighty. But he does use people like me, which shows his ability to do anything. He does use pastors, leaders, to teach and to guide and to show us how to grow in faith and how to rely on Jesus and how to become more like him so that we can experience heavenly community now, that we could pull the the new heavens and new earth life into now as we uh, respond positively to the preached word, to the word when it's taught. And so one of the things this also makes clear is that if we're not under the leadership of godly leaders, then we're we are out of accord with God's plan, God's word. But it also calls us to really think about who's the ultimate leader that's really... Leading us, and let's look at verses uh, 12 to 16 to talk about that. See, the author in verses 12 to 16, the author is still trying to convince the conversation or the congregation to persuade the congregation uh, to not be led astray by uh, strange teachings. And so, in verse 12, he says, "So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured." For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to acknowledge him, to do good, to share, uh, to please him. So one of the things that we can draw from these verses is that Jesus is the ultimate leader He's the one who's ultimately leading us. And the mark of any good leader is that he does first or she does first what she's calling others to do. That's real leadership. And there's no better picture of that than Jesus. And that's part of what the author is getting at here. He knows that this congregation is experiencing reproach as they live out their faith. But he's saying Jesus experienced reproach first as he was crucified outside the camp in utter shame. In other words, Jesus has already been where he's calling you to go. Jesus has already done what he's calling you to do. And he's saying the same to us. Jesus has done everything we're called to do first and he did everything for us. I mean, think about the things that are the the law, the commands just in this passage and realize that Jesus has already done all these things first and for us. He says, he calls them to hospitality. I mean, the cross is the ultimate picture of hospitality. Because that's Jesus welcoming our sin. Welcoming us to be united with him. And even taking our sin upon him. So he's shown us the ultimate hospitality. Uh, remembering those in prison. Showing compassion. Jesus He's the one who's ultimately showed compassion first by by having pity on us. We were imprisoned in our sin and he comes and he takes our sin and our guilt on himself on the cross. Uh, The author says to let marriage be honored, be faithful in marriage. Oh, there is no greater picture of faithfulness in marriage than Jesus Christ. Because his people, we, you and I, who believe, we are the bride of Christ. And he was Perfectly laser-focused, perfectly faithful to us, never abandoning us, even though we forget about him, we uh, do things sin against him all the time. He never abandons us. so he 's the ultimate picture, and his faithfulness to us is what led him to the cross, so that he could pay for our sins, and give us his righteousness, and then be raised from the dead so that we might believe the promises of eternal life. So he is the ultimate one who's faithful in marriage. So when we're needing strength to be hospitable, to be compassionate, to be faithful in marriage, it comes from remembering that we are united to Christ. Who's done all these things first and for us. That's why, again, look at verse 15. Through him. I love that. It's not on our own power. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. And acknowledge Him and do good and share. For that is a sacrifice pleasing to God. What pleases God is when we enjoy really genuine community with one another. True brotherly love community. What's pleasing to God is when we commit ourselves to His law and see that holiness is what prepares us to live in that brotherly love community that the world just cannot create or even mimic And what's pleasing to God is when we humbly submit ourselves to leadership, uh, to those that God has called to watch over our souls, that they might help us understand God's law and how through faith, how we are able to keep it. Not perfectly, but we are being made new. We can grow. And as we grow in holiness, our church grows in love. And as our church grows in love, the watching world wants Him. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Father, we... uh, I confess that I'm not as loving as I would like to be or as you call me to be, and so I repent, and I want to confess that as well as to rely more on your Holy Spirit and to cherish more your law. I pray that we would do that together as a body of believers, that we would see that it's not just nice if a church is loving, but it's the way it's supposed to be. And inevitably, as people inform us that they don't feel loved here, would you help us be humble and repentant and call out judgmentalism and self-righteousness that we would truly grow in true, warm, and inviting holiness, that we would all become more and more like Jesus, who was just irresistible to the broken. And we pray that as these things happen, and as we grow in our ability to follow the lead of others and to obey your law by the power of your holy spirit and to have a community of love we do pray that it would be part of how we bring the gospel to our neighbors and the nations and we pray in jesus name amen